This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here again is Dan Loney. Second hour of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. In low- and middle-income countries, poor and marginalized people often find themselves excluded from programs aimed at raising education levels. The United States provides aid to to countries in a wide range of areas, but only about 4% of that money involves education initiatives. And even that may be in jeopardy if the Trump administration goes through with a proposed foreign aid spending cuts. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, is looking at different ways to tackle education in a qualities. To discuss the importance of these initiatives, we are joined here in studio by Suzanne Grant-Lewis, who's director of the International Institute for Educational Planning for UNESCO, and also by Dan Wagner, chair in literacy and learning at Penn's Graduate School of Education. Suzanne, nice meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. A pleasure to be here. Dan, great to see you. Great to be here. Again. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, we talk about how important education is here in the United States, Take us into just how important it is in a variety of countries around the world in this day and age, Suzanne. Well, education is the foundation for all the sustainable development goals, which are a set of 17 goals that uh, every country in the world has now signed up for. These are relevant for every region of the, of the world. And education has its own goal, number four, but it also is the foundation for reaching so many of the other goals, whether it's addressing gender inequality or um, bringing about uh, change in employment opportunities, et cetera. Dan? Well, I look at it. um, uh, What Suzanne said, of course, is quite correct. Um, I like to think about it in terms of what every parent in the world wants for their children. And there is no country in the world where parents don't want the best <laughs> education for their children. Yeah. And yet we know now um, that even though major efforts were made in the last 20 years of getting kids into school, we know that lots of kids who go to school who are going to very poor schools and poor countries or even wealthy countries like the United States, that many children aren't learning what they need to learn in school. So we estimate uh, globally that somewhere between one and two billion children, youth, uh, are not learning the curriculum that are being taught while they are in school. And of course, there are hundreds of millions of children who are caught in situations of civil conflict, migration, sure. yeah. and so on, that um, where they've gone to little or no school. So this creates such a huge problem, and you're quite right. The amount of spending on it is is abysmally small. And we could make a difference if we spent more and we spent it um, I should say, more intelligently with the kind of research and development that both the organization like UNESCO and the University of Pennsylvania undertake together and with our other um, partners. You talked uh, about curriculum, and that's something that obviously has been brought up here in the United States and where we need to look moving forward, that maybe we need to tweak curriculum here to get students ready for the next generation of jobs. Uh, again, take us into, I mean, how important is that issue with curriculum in some of these other countries, not only getting the education, but being able to have the opportunity to actually put it to use once you graduate school? Right. So it's a huge issue, obviously. And again, parents know this as well. I was recently in Europe um, where 
the issue around migration and problems of what they call integration of people who are former migrants who have come in to countries like France and Belgium and Scandinavia and Germany and so on. The problem of even coming to agreement on what constitutes an appropriate curriculum. Do you build on, let's say, the Turkish population's Turkish skills when they come over, or yeah. do you teach them German? Or what kind of bilingual education programs work? In the case of Syria, which is a more, I should say, recent in the last five, ten years phenomenon, do you teach people so that they'll integrate into European society or so that they'll be prepared to go back to Syria? Yeah. And this has implications for what kind of curriculum. And I think in the United States, we have a parallel set of issues, obviously less, I would say, uh, dramatic than the Syria situation, but nonetheless serious about how effective are our own bilingual education programs um, who should take the bilingual education program? And parents themselves are confused about what should be the appropriate curriculum. And that plays out in a very similar way across the countries of the world, which are yeah. mainly multilingual. Suzanne? Mm. I was going to um, emphasize the, the learning point that uh, Dan mentioned, because Dan has been on this learning agenda for a long time. Yeah. Back in uh, 2011, we published his book on smaller, quick, quicker, cheaper, improving learning assessments for developing countries. The, the situation is such that we, we know kids are not learning, but governments are not monitoring the learning in sufficiently to really make decisions on how to improve learning, right. and including curriculum, could be uh, physical resources, teachers, etc., and understanding that, conf that uh, constellation of factors that determine whether a child is, is, is learning or not. They come to school hungry, or they, they have no resources at home to, to read. Uh, they are not able to attend school regularly enough because of opportunity costs of having to help with the family, uh, build family income, etc. There are just so many I issues. Um, and I think Dan's been highlighting this importance. And it's finally getting traction. I mean, this book was in 2011, but now we have the Sustainable Development Goals, which puts SDG4 for education, puts uh, equitable quality education and lifelong learning at the center. Uh, so we're hoping that uh, by getting the word out about the, the importance of this, that uh, we will see some change. Um, the World Bank's new World Development Report focused on on learning. It's called uh, Learning to Realize Education's Promise. Yeah. When the World Bank finally picks up on it, then you know there's something in the air and, and we're optimistic about change happening. Is there an assumption, I guess, then in some of these countries, and maybe it's why there's not as much monitoring of it, uh, that education basically takes care of itself? <laughs> like you, you have something in place. It's good. You don't you don't have to worry about it, and it doesn't need to be developed. It doesn't need to be tweaked. You know, it's set for the next fifty hundred years. And sometimes education systems have uh, done very well in mystifying the whole education process, right. and has not been welcoming to all the stakeholders. Everybody's an education stakeholder, right? Yeah. We've all been educated, or we have children going through a system, etc. Um, I think it's less about feeling it's okay because there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the U.S. about the sure, education yeah. system, um, but more about not knowing what to do. And I think putting learning front and center and really understanding how we go about improving it. Curriculum's a piece, but there's so many other pieces too. So how how much could it change if 
the United States or other countries invest more in this mm -hmm. in other countries. I mean, you're talking about right. not a maybe a direct impact on a country like the United States, but it would be an impact on the global economy, yes. which obviously Absolutely. then comes back to have a benefit towards the United States. Sure. And education is so uh, tightly linked to poverty reduction. Yeah. So I think it's good for the world when we have more literate people, people that finish primary or secondary education. It is uh, it creates markets uh, everywhere. It creates uh, you know healthier people, um, healthier families, etc. And I think that's all good for for the world. Um, foreign assistance. The U.S. foreign assistance has been focused over the last recent years on uh, reading. Um, not quite sure to what to what effect, but so much more needs to be done. Dan? Right. Um, a couple of thoughts. One is that we're speaking here in uh, business radio. And I think one of the questions that comes up is, is education really a business issue, other than the selling of education? Sure. Which, yeah. of course, University a, of Pennsylvania also does in the Wharton School. It's a and big industry, It's yes. a big industry. Yeah. But yeah. in terms of helping... The rest of the world, I, um, uh, how how important is education for globalization, for the international economy, and so on? And I th think that the the research science is out there that shows that education is really the best investment. As every parent knows, as I said earlier, I mean, you you vote with your feet as a parent, and you're always going to invest as much in education as you can. But I wanted to add one thing to your question about learning, um, and that is, um, well, for one, there is a new book out um, yep. called Learning as Development, Rethinking International Education in a Changing World. Um, and that's only out in the last uh, six, eight months. And in this book, I have reviewed research from a wide variety of countries around the world, United States, Uganda, Rwanda, Chile, all over China. And one of the very interesting scientific issues as a professor that I've had to, that I, did, I guess I've rediscovered while writing this book, is how much variation there is in the world of learning. Yeah. So you're quite right, Dan, that um, education is a broad template. We all went to school. We think schooling is more or less the same, yep. might have the same outcomes. But in fact, it doesn't. And we know that. We don't have to go further than Philadelphia to know how many kids, about half the population of Philadelphia um, isn't uh, learning the curriculum. The About 25% don't get through high school, and about yeah. 25%, 50% are reading at about a fifth grade level rather than 10th grade, which is when they drop out. So things are serious here. They're also serious in Bamako. The statistics are actually roughly the same. I mean, we're all developing countries when it, we look at trying to improve learning in children. Um, one of the findings of my this new book is that um, the limitations that we have as, let's say, North American and European researchers is that we tend to research our own kids. Sure, yeah. And so the amount of research, it's been estimated, it's not my estimate, but another person's estimate, that about 95% of our research on the learning in education is based on children from North America and Western Europe. About 5% is geared to the rest of the world, which is about 90% of the population. Yeah. So you have a complete inversion between the people you would want to understand and the kind of science that we have invested in. So the consequence is that we actually need to invest not just in providing more money 
to and higher salaries and more light bulbs, all of which are important. Mm -hmm. We also need to understand, and this is a role of a university principally, need to understand what would be more effective, what would be most effective. How do you look at these children, youth from different cultures around the world? And I might add, just as another plug, because um, Sue Grant-Lewis is here with me today, She, her organization actually published the latest book in this. This came out just this past week called Learning at the Bottom of the Pyramid, Science, Measurement, and Policy in Low-Income Countries, which looks precisely and drives more deeply into this issue. What do we know? What do we don't know? Yeah. How we need to invest in the research and development side. Which is probably the, the 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 part, I guess, at this point that is, in terms of taking the next steps forward, it's a little concerning that we still are trying to gain the information mm-hmm. of what is out there and what we need to change where education is concerned, mm-hmm. not only here in the United States, but all around the world. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, more and more countries are participating in international um, assessments like PISA and TIMS, et cetera. Or have a region part of a regional assessment, yeah. But a lot of countries still not not doing that and not don't assess learning at the national level. Yeah. So we're looking at if you're you're trying to aim for inclusive, equitable, quality education where learning is the is the main focus. Uh, we've really got to help countries think through uh, how they best monitor and then how do they use that that data into policy making and decision making into resource allocation. Yeah. That I think is the area where we're my institute's trying to uh, trying to assist. Which means that the big data that we all kind of are involved with here in the United States does not get used in the same no. way in in exactly. various countries around the world. No, exactly. And at the same time the Sustainable Development Goal number four has expanded the definition of education. So we yeah. really have to look at the whole um, birth to, to life, yeah. early childhood, formal schooling in primary, secondary, et cetera. There's a, there's a program I wanted to bring up that you guys are involved with, UNESCO Education 2030. Tell us about it and, sure. and what it all right. entails. So that's focused on Sustainable Development Goal number four. Yeah. Because UNESCO is the responsible for coordinating the global effort to meet the targets of yeah. SDG 4. Uh, and there are different uh, pieces to it. My institute's also uh, a piece of that. We have the Institute for Statistics in Montreal that's, that's – uh, the official trusted source for all the international co- comparable data, but they don't have the data for national assessments. I mean, it's, uh, and um, they are leading the global alliance for measuring learning. So we're hopeful of, of that. Uh, they they tap experts like Dan Wagner um, uh, for for that. Then we also have the Global Education Monitoring Re- Report of of UNESCO, which is uh, uh, reporting on on education, both the Sustainable Development Goal, but also education as it contributes to the other sustainable goals. My institute's focused on how do you get the learning into the policy and planning process because it's the application where I think we've got a really big gap. Should we, Dan, should we have an expectation at some point down the road? Because obviously with some of the things that that you have both said here today, we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. But should we have a a belief that at some point down the road that we can – Big, you know, our our education throughout the world can be more on a uniform level in terms of the goals and 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 reaching the level of achievement that uh, that we have here in the United States. Be the same that happens in Africa or Australia or 
South America. Can we get to that point at some point? Well, let me answer in two ways. One is um, I need to say, because uh, Sue Grant Lewis is here representing an institute of UNESCO, that we at Penn have one of the very few UNESCO chairs in education. Right. Um, I am that UNESCO chair. And that has given, I think, um, a motivation and uh, intellectual resources of the entire university toward trying to achieve these goals and working in partnership with, with UNESCO over many years now. Actually, our first relationship with UNESCO was more than 30 years ago. Um, so I, I think that the uh, a way to answer your question is that if we can also mobilize the intellectual resources of universities like the University of Pennsylvania to address these goals, yes, I think yeah. we, and that's why we work in partnership with UNESCO and other UN and other kinds of agencies. I think that what we'll find in direct answer to your question, Dan, is that um, we, it is unlikely that we'll have identical education systems around the world. The world is too diverse. But we have to find ways, just like we do in taxation policies or election policies and so on, yeah. we'll find ways that, that are adaptive to local, cultural, and national systems. Um, I do think uh, that the work in this area is so important. And it's not only about, I know we, I was mentioning a moment ago the business sense of things. Sure. But, but we have climate change. We have migration. Yep. We have this increasing inequity in our society, whether it's educational inequity, learning inequity, a term we use sometimes. Um, how do we address these issues without um, having civil conflict? Education is actually one of our few tools, and we've recognized this for hundreds of years yeah. since the founding of our country and, and many other countries around the world. So this is not small potatoes. Uh, the problem is, as you said right at the outset of this uh, interview, is that we are small potatoes in terms of resources yeah. and in terms of priority. Um, it, it's just almost unbelievable how little we spend on this issue globally and nationally relative to its importance for every country in the world and for the global order. Uh, this must be much more central, and I'm so glad to be able to speak on your show uh, so we reach a different community. We often talk amongst ourselves. We agree sure. with ourselves. Yeah. But trying to get your community more involved, it would really be fantastic. So, Sue, so how, how do you potentially go about making some of these changes, and, and more so the structural foreign policy changes, the foreign aid changes. Mm -hmm. How do you go about either, A, increasing the level that needs to be increased, or B, the focus of where and what mm -hmm. with the money that you do have? Sure. So um, all foreign assistance agencies today are very results-focused, right? So yeah. it's very important that education, people working in education, are, are focused on results. And the number one result we're aiming for is, is children learning. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that we're making some headway in increasing support to education, but it's it's not uh, what we wished it would be. But recognize that foreign assistance is a very small piece of the pie. The vast majority of funding, financing of education globally is domestic financing. Right. So that's where I think UNESCO has an important role to uh, to really campaign for, advocate for higher 
domestic investment in education, yeah. um, but then really focus on uh, the inequalities. I think it's it's less to me. I was thinking about your comment, your question to Dan. I think it's less about uniformity, but rather trying to reduce the inequalities within any one country. Mm-hmm. You look at South Africa has incredible Gini index, uh, you know, in inequality index. You have some first-class um, schools and universities, et cetera, and extremely impoverished uh, segments of the society. And, and many, many countries all over the world, including yeah. in the U.S., inequalities have, have increased. So we, we do need to pay attention to learning as a, as a real powerful way to address the social inequalities that we have. Aren't there countries that, that are starting to make a difference and they are starting to put it together and, and understand either A, the funding, but what you're actually funding for? Are there countries that, that you see that are really taking those next steps already? Yeah, I'd say a country like Senegal in West Africa, um, that's quite committed. Uh, they've got not just the, the government working, but civil society. They have a a really interesting um, civil society assessment that's trying to keep the government accountable, right. uh, feeding back mm-hmm. on what they're seeing in household surveys where they, they test kids who are school age. And you know, learning levels are, are poor, but they're raising public awareness. And I think that's quite critical. Then what about then is within some of these countries, yeah. uh, the government obviously is responsible for part of it, but how much does the private sector potentially either are they in it now or potentially they need to be to give an assist mm. to be able to provide their information to be able to move move these along. Well, private sector big umbrella, right? Yeah. It's everything from nonprofits and church and community organizations to for profits, etc. And you have all of th- that wide range of options in education. Private sector is is more and more engaged in in education. Um, it's always been engaged at the nonprofit level, I think, you know, because com- education is a local activity, and whether it's church or communities have argued, you know, established schools, et cetera. Um, on the for-profit si- side, um, I think the growth of higher education is is phenomenal yeah. in the in the developing world, in particular. But it's a mixed it's a, a mixed history with for-profit primary and secondary education, I would say, because it's not. It's not. Uh, it's exacerbating inequalities. Yeah, that's what I would have said. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's a silver lining to, and, and not so silver lining to all these <laughs> issues. Yeah. And uh, the private sector, while there's some fantastic things we love to talk about, uh, there are also some some areas where the private sector has taken the national energy and focused it in programs that maybe were not so good, and particularly not enhancing uh, more equity in education. So the thing that Susan and I have been working on most recently in our partnership is this learning equity agenda, which, as she correctly stated, um, you know, in countries like South Africa and there are others, including the United States, where the inequity is growing, the gap between those, the haves and the have-nots, both economically and educationally and in terms of learning, is growing more stark every year. And so we need to pay more attention to it, understand it, know what would be appropriate policies. We do need to get the private sector involved in that. I, for the private sector, one of the, one of the, I think, temptations is to 
try to make money off of education. Yeah, yeah. Which drives the country into more inequity rather than more equity. Um, there are wonderful programs that are happening all around the world. But it is a problem if your focus is trying to improve the bottom of the pyramid, those who are most in need, which, by the way, is the group that's going to be the most hit by the cataclysms that we now see in hurricanes and so on. I, I was struck, if you don't mind my saying, by the, the news just uh, last evening of uh, Hurricane Florence. The people who were taken out of their homes were not the wealthy community. Yeah. They were the yep. people who couldn't afford to leave their home. Yep. Uh, and I think if you then look at, there were pictures at the same time of the Philippines. They had their own hurricane. Yeah. And so these problems, problems of education, inequality, are all tied together in a much greater globalized set of issues now than I think we we are aware of. And I think we'll have to be paying a lot more attention to these issues of education and how they affect the broad society and our future. Thank you both for coming in. Greatly appreciate it for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 